The All My Favorite People podcast is proudly sponsored by Peace Love T-Shirts. Go to peacelovet-shirt.com to see the entire All My Favorite People collection of shirts, hats, and bags. While you're there, check out the other collections from our collaborators like Healing and Hope, The Controversy, and Ink Happy. Go to peacelovet-shirt.com and use code FAVORITE for $5 off your first order. Hey friend, get ready to listen in on some long-form conversations and authentic stories with people who have decided to turn their mess into their mission and their past into their purpose. We'll talk on topics like faith, family, and entrepreneurship. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of All My Favorite People. My name is Brittany Jones and with me today I have my friend Emily Wilhelm. Hey Emily, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good girl, I'm so glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, I'm so pumped. Yes, girl, me too. Even at 9am on a Monday morning, we are pumped, okay? We're here, we're here for it. Whatever coffee, we're ready to go. That's right, that's all you need in the world. (laughs) All right, girl. So um, kind of the way that I do this is like, we just jump right in. I'm going to have you share a little bit about you, yourself personally, and then we'll kind of jump into your story and um, talk about some of the things that you've been working through and just learning this last year. And um, so I'm just going to let you kind of take the the mic and run with it. Um, So share with everyone just a little bit about you and, um, and then we'll, we'll talk your story. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks. I uh, own my own business. I do um, social media content and copywriting and blogging. Um, And I played sports my whole life. I went to Liberty University down in Virginia. Um, I am currently living in Baltimore um, and I'm getting a puppy in August, which I'm so excited about. Um, and I also coach lacrosse um, for high school and middle school girls. So um, still staying involved with sports and then also running a business at the same time. But yeah, and I grew up in Baltimore, so I'm kind of back in my hometown and um, just really enjoying being back and getting kind of settled. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So lacrosse obviously has been a huge part of your life for a long, long time. Um, and that's actually, if I remember, what brought you to Liberty, right? Yeah, so I grew up playing lacrosse since I was probably seven or eight. If you grow up in Maryland, um, chances are you're going to play lacrosse. My uh, mom grew up in Michigan, so she didn't have any idea what it was, but um, she was like, this is a cool sport. You guys should try this. And so my sister and I did, and, um, you know, we kind of just loved it. And um, so, yeah, when I was getting recruited, back when the rules were different, when I was getting recruited, um, you could verbally commit like as early as eighth grade in middle school or like your freshman year of high school. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I had never gone to a Christian school and I was looking at, you know, Syracuse and Hopkins and um, a couple other schools that were more lacrosse focused, but Liberty was the only one that was really a Christian school and um, they had a relatively new program, but I just really wanted to have kind of that Christian experience that I hadn't had yet. So that led me to Liberty. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about that then too, because you and I were kind of chatting the other day and you were telling me a little bit about how like you didn't grow up in church necessarily, but you were Mm -hmm. exposed to it, if you will, through some friends. So tell us a little bit about that too. 
Yeah. So I didn't necessarily grow up going to church. I mean, my grandparents would take me when I was little and that was kind of the extent of it until probably when I started playing lacrosse, ironically, it was my first lacrosse coach and my best friend who I'm still really close with, but her family would go to church. And so I would sleep over their house and they would always ask if I slept over from a Saturday to a Sunday, if I wanted to go to church with them. And at first I was kind of like, this is weird, like maybe not. And then I went with them. And honestly, I think it was just because a lot of the people there were super nice. I was like, okay, like this seems interesting. So I would go with them, you know, on the weekends. And that really started my faith journey of being interested in the church and being interested in Christianity because people just seemed People just seem different. I remember looking at, you know, that family's marriage and just how honest and real it was and how they just really respected each other. And my parents have done the same thing, but um, it just seemed different somehow to me. And I just wanted to be around it. And so that kind of began my journey into Christianity. And then I wanted to learn more on my own. And so I kind of did that. And then coming to Liberty was definitely a bit of a shock because I hadn't really been in Christian culture, like immersed in it that much. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely, it was cool, but it was also kind of like culture shock. Like when you go to another country and you're kind of adjusting to all of the customs and like stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's how it all started. <laughs> yeah. You know, my pastor actually yesterday just shared a message on how essentially, you know, as Christians, and it's so, it's cliche, but it's so true that, you know, as Christians, sometimes you're the, the Jesus that people know, you know, you are representative of him in the world and the way that you treat people and the way that you act and the way that you respond to things, it Mm -hmm. is different than the world. And in, you know, in a perfect world, we, we represent Christ day in and day out and people can look at us and see that, you know, there is something different that is attractive and, um, you know, appealing, if you will. Um, So that's really cool that that was your experience, you know? Um, And then even just recently, our family has had the opportunity to really kind of be a light for another family that is walking through some challenging things and, you know, I was telling my husband yesterday, it's not about like, it's not me bragging on me or on us. Like it really is me boasting in the Lord and saying that like, what an honor, right. To be a person that somebody else looks at and says like, there's something different. Like, I, I don't even know what that is, but I'm, I'm drawn to it and I want to know more, you know? Um, so I love that that was your experience. Now I know that that hasn't been like your entire experience though, right? You've run across a couple of us crazy Christians that are a little more legalistic or, you know, have maybe, you know, unfortunately within Christianity, because there's so many denominations and things, you Mm -hmm. do have a lot of like differing opinions. Um, So tell us a little bit about, you don't have to throw anybody under the bus, but (laughs) tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you encountered kind of stepping into Christian culture as a, maybe an outsider? Yeah. um, So I think there's so many different kind of layers to that, but for me and my own experience, um, 
my journey in mental health has been the thing that's been the most challenging in terms of understanding how that fits in with my faith because so many people have so many different opinions about that in Christian culture and you know as a I don't know how old I was, I think a 19, 20 year old kid, essentially, who's struggling with this stuff. And, you know, there are some people who are handling it really well and really genuinely loving you like Jesus would in that moment. And then there are other people who just for whatever reason, don't understand or don't want to understand or just feel super uncomfortable with those topics, um, come across super judgmental and um, a bit legalistic. And so at Liberty, with it being obviously the largest Christian school, you know, in the U.S., um, with over 15,000 people residentially, you're going to have a whole mixed bag of that. And yeah. there are going to be some people who are absolutely incredible. And there are going to be other people who honestly make you question your faith and make mm. you question, well, if this is what, you know, these people who claim to be representing Jesus think about me as I'm going through probably the hardest time in my life, um, then do I want that? And so it's been this very interesting kind of personal journey for me in terms of how do I reconcile my faith with that? And I mean, I'll be honest, there are times when I'm like, I don't want any part of this if this is how people are going to think about what I'm going through when it's so difficult. Um, but then that kind of still small voice within you being like, yeah, but that's not me. Like those are imperfect people who are, um, those are imperfect people who are, you know, doing the best that they can, but for whatever reason, it just, it's just not translating into a kind, loving response. Yeah. So yeah, there's kind of, there's kind of been the whole gamut. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and like we were just saying, and that's unfortunately, you know, as humans, we are flawed and we're never going to respond correctly a hundred percent of the time. But I think especially when you're encountering people who don't have a relationship with Christ or have a really new relationship with Christ, I think it's so important to like almost be overly compassionate because, you know, like I know where I was prior to Christ or in my hardest moments. And that's what I needed, you know, and it's kind of that treat others as you want to be treated, you know, that golden rule. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about, since you brought it up, the mental health piece of, of our conversation, because um, I know that that's, it's a topic that we actually cover on here quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's definitely near and dear to my heart. Um, I shared with you a little bit the other day, and then I'll let you kind of share your story. But you know, that it's something that my family has, um, encountered over the years, um, because of my dad's struggle with depression, um, and just, uh, multiple instances of, um, attempted suicide over my life, you know, just experiencing that secondhand from my dad, um, yeah. as a child of someone who struggles with that, it's really hard. Like, it's a very, um, I keep using the word challenging, but it's so true. It, it really is. It's just, it's, it's a hard place to be because obviously you love your, your family member, but unless you experience it to that level, I don't know that you can really understand it. So 
what have you, what did that look like for you? And, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, how your friends and family responded to that and what that's looked like for you as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, it's so, it's so difficult because there's, it impacts so many people, not just the person struggling, but so I think I can kind of address that from someone who struggled and then also, someone who's seen my family and other friends really just, you know, struggle with that because it's such a hard thing. Um, But for me, I got to college freshman year and came from a pretty solid lacrosse program and was just like ready to go. Like I was just ready to be there, ready to do the whole college thing, ready to just like dive into being a division one athlete. And I was in the honors program and all of it. And So I did, and that summer after my freshman year, um, really started to struggle and get like super tight, super like weird, confusing episodes where my chest would get really tight and I would start to shake and I would almost feel like I couldn't get out of bed and didn't really understand what was going on. And so as an athlete, I was just like, eh, it'll probably go away Um, as most athletes do. And it's normally something that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Um, But I struggled that whole summer and I didn't really tell anyone and was just like, this is weird, it'll just pass. And I got back to school in the fall for my sophomore year and it didn't go away. It got a lot worse. And so it got to the point where I wasn't sleeping and we had practice really early in the morning and you know it was just making my life really unmanageable and really hard to navigate and so eventually with the prompting of a lot of friends because I was not about to do this on my own went to my athletic trainer and was like something's wrong I don't know what it is but I you know I want to get this figured out and So then I started going to counseling um, a little bit through the counselors that they had provided at Liberty, Um, but it wasn't super effective. There were only two of them and we had so many student athletes and they weren't specialized for athletes or for young adults um, at all. And so that for me was really difficult because I felt like I was trying to get help, but it wasn't working. Mm. And so then as a lot of people's experience probably um, can testify when you have anxiety that goes unaddressed for a really long time, you can then spiral into depression and the two kind of, you know, go back and forth. You get super anxious and you get a panic attack and then you come down from that and you crash and you get really depressed for a couple of days. Um, And sometimes the depression lingers longer depending on like the skills and the medicine that you're on. Um, So that started happening to me and I felt like I was trying to get help and it wasn't working and I was getting really frustrated and nothing was getting better. It was only getting worse. Um, and I, at that point, this is probably another important conversation had not gone on medicine yet, because to me, someone who doesn't even like to take ibuprofen when I have a fever or anything like that, I was like, uh, uh-uh, no way, no how I'm not doing that. That's weird. Um, eventually was like, I will do anything I can to not feel like this anymore. Yeah. And so I went on medicine and it got a little bit better Fast forward to that summer, um, I had been hospitalized once while I was at school in kind of backwoods, Virginia, 
um, for, you know, having really intense suicidal thoughts, hadn't really done anything yet. Um, but, you know, that kind of spiraled into self-harm. And then that summer I did attempt to take my own life and was in the hospital. And um, I think it was a lot worse than I still even kind of can comprehend today. I think it, it's one of those things where when it's you and you're laying there in the hospital bed, it's just hard to process that you can come that close to not being here. Um, so was in the hospital and um, got transferred to an inpatient unit. And then from there went to outpatient um, for about two weeks. And so since then I, you know, tried to go back to school, tried to start playing lacrosse again. And um, God was like, no, that's not what I'm gonna have you do. And I fought it like hell the whole way until I realized that this was not helping me get better. Um, so then I moved home, um, literally started working a like minimum wage job from 3 a.m. till 10 a.m. and then got into insurance. And then when COVID hit, started ironically my own company with social media and here I am today. So it was not what I had planned at all. I finished school online. I did not plan to do that. Um, but, you know, now I'm in a much, much, much better place when I finally just gave up what I wanted to do. Mm. And, um, you know, so now things are a lot better. They're not perfect, um, but definitely a thousand times better than they were, you know, two, three years ago. So, yeah. Do you think, so it sounds like lacrosse was a pretty decent piece of like the anxiety. Do you, do you remember prior to college feeling like that sense of maybe like perfectionism or what, what do you think like that striving for excellence all the time? Was that a big factor or what do you think kind of changed from high school to college for you? Um, that's always been a part of my personality. Um, my mom can tell you I was the kid who wanted to do a million and 10 things and do them the absolute best that I could. And sometimes she, especially when I was younger, had to be like, whoa, like slow down. We can't do all those things. You can't expect yourself to be perfect. Yeah. Um, but in high school, this is kind of a fun fact. Um, I played for McDonough in Maryland. And so when I was in high school, we had a over 10 year winning streak where we hadn't lost a game. And I think we still hold the record for most games won. And so our coaches were amazing coaches, but it was a lot of pressure as a high school kid to like, anytime you would play a game, people wanted to break that streak. And it almost became like, something that you know we didn't really talk about it a ton as a team but there was definitely pressure where it wasn't just going out there and having fun it was you know always striving to not lose and so um I think I started to feel a little bit of burnout before I went to college that summer but you know just in typical fashion I was just kind of like oh, whatever it'll go away um yeah so yeah, that's always been a part of my personality. And now, you know, even running a business, there are times where I have to step back and be like, this is not realistic, what you're asking of yourself. And we need to take our expectations down a notch. Yeah. So 
and there's nothing yep. wrong with that. <laughs> and actually <laughs> you're helping yourself by doing that versus pushing yeah. yourself to that like impossible standard. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. So you talked uh, momentarily about self-harm. Do you mind if we go there for a yeah. second? Okay. Yeah. So I know there's girls that, and, and boys too, that struggle with this and mm-hmm. use this as a mechanism for, I'm assuming to feel, but I don't know. So share with us a little bit about kind of like, and I know you're speaking from your own personal experience. And so you're not necessarily speaking for everyone, but it's kind of like, (laughs) this is tough, right? So like what would compel a person to do that? Right. And what, what, in your mind, even if it's not logical, like what is, what is your mind conveying to you that would make you think that that's like a, that that would be helpful? I don't know. Yeah. So for me and everyone's kind of reason for self-harming is different, but there are some common threads. Um, For me, it normally is to feel a sense of control when I feel like my emotions are completely out of control because that's it seems like you know a lot of times you can't control your emotional pain and so you're like okay well I can control this physical pain Mm. and so you know that as a coping mechanism albeit not a helpful one but a coping mechanism is what it is Mm -hmm. um is to feel some sense of control, to feel, you know, some sense of having things in kind of a manageable state, even though ironically, I mean, you're not obviously because you're harming yourself. But um, for me, that's normally one of one of those things. Or I mean, for a lot of people, like you said, it can be feeling numb and feeling so frustrated with feeling that way that people, you know, want to feel something. And so Um, it's actually a lot more common than people realize Uh, it's just not talked about a lot and it's also not talked about a lot in kind of therapy and psychological um, or psychiatric care Um, you know I've had the experience where I've been in the hospital a couple times and share that with a nurse and they're like whoa whoa like we don't talk about that here Um, that's crazy Yeah. And uh, now I understand that I've met more people who have had that experience that it's still something that's really stigmatized and people don't talk about it because you don't want to trigger someone, but then also it's uncomfortable. Um, But, you know, there are self-harm meetings, kind of like AA meetings, and um, there are options in terms of therapy like DBT, which is super helpful. Um, But also like just psychologically and biologically when you cut or self-harm it releases the same chemicals like in your brain as it does um you know taking some type of upper drug and they've done research studies on that so it is to an extent an addiction because you Mm. know when you feel really low and you do that you get kind of like a hit of serotonin almost um and I'm not you know, a counselor, but I have been around it for a while in my own struggles. So um, it is interesting because I think it's very misunderstood. Um, Yeah. I think the more we talk about it, the more people feel empowered to speak up and get help for it. Totally. I could not agree more. 
And, you know, when you're saying that, you know, we, we hear the term self-harm. I think most of us think cutting. Um, but as soon as you said that it's about control, I'm like, that's what I do when I'm scrolling aimlessly through Facebook or Instagram for an hour, because I'm like in procrastination mode. And I'm just so overwhelmed with all the things that I have going on that I just shut off and I, I just turn, turn off. So in a way, and I'm not, I'm, I don't want to conflate, you know, like something that's genuinely, you know, a really big deal. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to negate what you're saying, but I'm, I I look at that and I think, man, it's, I'm, I'm harming myself because I'm devaluing my time and things like that. And then I think about things like bulimia and, um, you know, like just eating disorders and things like that and how that's always like wrapped in this idea of control. And, you know, it kind of little light bulb went off in the sense of like, we all do this, this Mm -hmm. harm to one degree or another in as a, like you're saying, like a coping mechanism, you know, as like a way to have control. So I think that's so interesting because to be honest, like even 10 minutes ago, before we started talking about this, I'm thinking like, I, it, it's incomprehensible to someone who has never experienced that. Like, why would you do that? But when you say like, there's that serotonin and like it's chemical and that makes perfect sense to me. Um, What have you found then when you, cause I know you mentioned that, you know, bringing these subjects up one is just like, it's a challenging subject and it does make some people uncomfortable. So I hope you're still listening, even if you're uncomfortable <laughs> right now, because um, <laughs> it is important. Um, but you did experience some interesting responses to mm. this information being shared with some people. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think it's important for people to hear, um, you know, from your perspective as someone who has experienced that, what are, what's helpful and what's not helpful? Mm. Yeah. So it's hard because no, obviously no person is the same. So what helps me might not necessarily help someone else, but for me, I've experienced people who overreact and, you know, maybe, Maybe medical attention isn't necessarily required. We don't need to call 911, but they freak out. And it's, I mean, it's scary to see when someone has harmed themselves. Like you don't know what to do. And so some people, I think justifiably overreact and feel like they need to call 911 when maybe it's not necessarily necessary in that situation. And then some people, you know, they don't know what to do. And so they just won't say anything. And so they kind of underreact because they can't process it. And everyone processes differently. Um, For me, um, it's been really a process of kind of understanding what works well for me and being able to communicate that to the people around me. Um, And I think that for everyone who does self-harm or is in recovery from that um I think that's kind of the goal is to get there and it's not necessarily linear because a lot of the times you don't even know what you need you don't know in that moment when you're trying to experience control and you feel so out of control 
you don't really know what it is that you need. Now, for me, I'm able to, for example, with my boyfriend now, if something happens where I do relapse and I do self-harm, I'm able to say, I just need you to be there with me. I need you to be compassionate. I don't need you to offer any advice. And I literally just need you to just sit there with me and to let me process and to just be a friend. Um, and, you know, for him, it's hard because he wants to just try to fix it. Um, but I just have to say again and again, like, I just need you to be there with me and, you know, encourage me that we're still making progress, even if it doesn't feel like it in this moment. Um, so, and then there's also a lot of other skills that you can kind of go through in terms of, I mentioned DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. It was developed for people with borderline personality disorder, but it also secondarily was developed for people who self-harm. And so there's a lot of skills and tactics with that. So one of them, I'll just briefly mention it, is called TIPS, which, um, a lot of times when you self-harm, again, it's about the control. It's about like kind of the bodily sensory sensation of something different going on to distract your brain. So with that, the T stands for temperature. So you could hold, it's kind of a step-by-step thing. So you could hold an ice cube in your hand and that would be temperature. The second one is intense exercise. So you, after you do the ice cube, then you do a couple of squats. Um, the next one is pace breathing. So maybe you go in for four, hold for four, out for four. And then the last one is progressive muscle um, relaxation. So you'd really, you'd like clench your fist or like tighten up a specific muscle group on your body for a couple seconds and then release it. And the theory behind it is, you know, if you're trying to feel some sense of sensory sensation, that those specific steps going through all of those give you that without having to harm yourself. Hmm. And so that's something that I've done that's really helpful. For some people, it doesn't work. But for me, that's one of the skills that I've learned. So it's kind of both. It's communicating with, you know, the people around you, what you do need when you're in a headspace that's rational and you're able to do that. And then also, you know, getting skills that work for you to help kind of you feel prepared in those moments to take on that challenge. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool, first of all. And I've definitely, you know, we talked really briefly that we're both Enneagram twos. So we're yeah. helpers and we, something that I know I've struggled with is speaking what I, my needs, like speaking my needs aloud. I, I honestly didn't even up until a couple years ago, realized that I didn't know how to do that. Um, and it's been so illuminating to realize like I can, because, so what we used to happen was I'd get like, for example, my husband, and I would get in an argument or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it's about thing A, but really it's about thing Z. And I don't even realize it's about thing Z because we're talking about thing A, right? And so like emotionally and just like, whether that's anger or sadness and crying and whatever, I'm like working it out. And then by the end of the like conversation, I'm like, this is really what it was about, right? Like the whole time. And so that was the process for me for so many years was just like working through it emotionally. Whereas Mm -hmm. now I've kind of learned how to maybe take a step back in the moment and literally ask myself, like, why am I feeling this way? What am I feeling? Like what triggered me to, to suddenly feel this way? And 
Like, what can I say to my husband or my son or whoever? So that one, like I can kind of get it off my chest, Mm. but also, so they know in the future, like, Hey, that's something that totally just threw me for a loop. I know you didn't mean it intentionally, but it did. So like next time this happens, you know, maybe we can both be on the same page. Um, But there's so much power to being able to sit in that moment and attempt to figure out what it is that you're feeling or what's driving those feelings. Um, And then being able to speak it to the person that is like the safest person, right? And be able to say, in this moment, this is what I need. And I love that you said that because I think even, I think everyone probably, myself included, has dealt with depression or even suicidal thoughts at some point in their life. And and if you haven't, I am like psyched for you because (laughs) I know that I've had moments, very, very low moments in my life um, where I've had those thoughts as well. And, um, but to be able to get to a place where you can recognize what you're feeling and recognize what your triggers are and be able to just have the people in your life understand it to a level where they can be helpful um, Mm -hmm. and not hurtful in those moments, I think is so important. Um, And then you also talked a little bit about, I know you had mentioned AA and Mm -hmm. that that's something, is that okay that we talk about that? You'd shared with me, I think last week about how it had been really impactful to you. So even though that's um, technically right. Alcoholics anonymous, but you said that it it had kind of, um, just, just helped you. So can we talk about that? (laughs) Yeah. Um, for sure. I, yeah. So I have a friend who is in AA and, um, you know, throughout kind of just being there for them and being their friend, I've gotten to go to AA meetings and, I have never felt so close to Jesus than I have in those meetings. And I think a large part of it is because, you know, you're like, it's people who are actively seeking recovery and actively seeking to be the best version of themselves in a really honest, messy, like non-linear way a lot of times. Um, And just being super bold and vulnerable with each other in a way that, you know, they're not really trying to hide anything. Maybe someone who's unhealthy in recovery is, but um, for the most part, it's just super honest. And for me, it kind of, you know, I was sitting there one time and it kind of just hit me like, these are the places that Jesus would hang out at. Like, those are the places and those are the people that he would want to be friends with and that he would want to spend his time around. And when you think about like, he didn't even have that long on this earth. Like that's who he intentionally spent time with and so for me as someone who is in recovery and also someone who's felt kind of misunderstood by the church seeing people in AA because there is you know some people don't really subscribe to Christianity in in AA but a lot of them do and seeing that messiness of just being able to come up in front of people and be like this is what I'm struggling with and sometimes it's really hard stuff that like I wouldn't go into a room of strangers and stand up there and be like, this is what I'm struggling with, but these people do. And it's because, you know, in order to recover from being alcoholic, you have to. And 
So for me, it was just one of those like, wow, like type moments. And so I get really excited every time I get to go to those meetings because it just, it ignites something inside me that's a lot different than just going and hanging out with a group of friends sometimes. Um, and you also meet the most interesting people. Like people have the craziest stories. And sometimes, I mean, they're not great ones. And sometimes they're really cool. So just being, especially like you mentioned, Enneagram too, like just go kind of popping around the meeting afterwards and getting to talk to people. I just, I love it. So um, yeah, I think it's a very interesting kind of environment to be in especially if you've been in super conservative Christian culture or even if you're just kind of interested about what that entails yeah well and it it sounds like it's helpful yeah no matter what you know that you know like you said it's all it's an addiction really right with even the self-harm piece so to be able to recover you have to go through a process Um, so what does, what does church life look like for you these days? Are you, are you connected and plugged in somewhere or have you found, um, have you found a community that you feel like you can be your authentic self around and in, and that people are, you know, loving you and accepting you as you are? Um, not currently. And I, you know, I think in the past I would have been like, Yeah, totally. Even if I didn't, like I would have just lied about it and I would have been like, sure, I'm totally plugged in and I have like this amazing community and I'm totally fine. Um, But no, I mean, the pandemic, Sure. first of all, we, I mean, I'm in Maryland and we we're having church services now, but it's still, we didn't for probably like a year. Yeah. Um, And also just as someone who struggles with the things that I struggle with in terms of mental illness and self-harm and that kind of stuff. It's so hit or miss depending on who you talk to. And I think what's hard for me is, you know, maybe you have one friend who's totally accepting, but you go to church and maybe the pastor says something kind of off the cuff about depression. You're like, whoa, like that, huh? Like, no. So it's just, it's a lot in terms of like, risk in -hmm. terms of having to kind of like listen to that and be hurt by it there's a lot of risk involved in going to church because it's a lot more people you don't know what they think about it you have a pastor who you don't know if they've experienced mental health struggles at all um and so for me right now I'm kind of like I'm so active in my faith but I'm doing a lot of it by myself and kind of pulling in people who I mean, are accepting and understand and love Jesus. And maybe they don't all live close to me, but keeping in touch with them and being honest with them um, is kind of where I'm at. And I think in the past I would have been like, oh, that's so not okay for me to be in that place. But I think I'm right now, I'm just like, you know what? Like it is what it is. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, and you have, it sounds like you have a support system, even like you said, if they're far away, like, yeah. and, and don't get me wrong. Of course, it's great to have community in person where you are, but like you said, like you're doing something and something is better than nothing. And especially if you're surrounding yourself with the right people who are going to uplift you and hear you when, you know, you're having a hard time. 
So I know I actually talked about this a little bit with Jenny Price, my coach. Um, and it was one of our first episodes, but like, just curious for you specifically, how do you reconcile Christianity and mental health issues? Like, how do those things, like, Mm -hmm. I guess my question really is like, I think for most people who don't understand this conversation entirely yeah they're like isn't Jesus enough like can't God just heal you like why do you have to take medicine or why do you still have to go to therapy or this or that or whatever I am not that person all right like I fully believe like if the doctor has prescribed you something and it's helpful and take it you know if you know whatever like AA if that's helpful do it so what, not necessarily like, what would you say to the person who's like, Jesus should be enough for you. But like, what is that? What is the reality of that look like? Because I know you and I know that you love Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like what have you, have you kind of like played with that idea in your, in your mind at all? Yeah. So I guess I have two kind of main things off of that. The first thing I'll say is I well, this will be a good preface. So um, I would encourage people to open their Bibles um, because there are suicidal thoughts all over the Bible um, and we somehow conveniently skip over them. Um, but I love pointing people to first Kings with Elijah on the side of the mountain when he's getting pursued by all these people who want to kill him and he gets to the side of the mountain. And he's like, God, I just want to die. Just take my life. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. And God does not turn to him and say, aren't I enough for you? Yeah. Like, why do you feel that way? Mm. He doesn't like just sit there and judge him. That's not what he does. He's like, okay, this is where we are. Um, Go take a nap because you're physically tired. Like go sleep. Yeah. And then when you wake up, I'm going to provide food for you because you're physically hungry. Mm. So eat and then take a sip of water. And then Elijah's like, okay, God, like I'm ready to go. And God's like, nope, go take another nap. You're not ready for this journey yet. Like he tends to Elijah's physical symptoms before he even, people like to talk about like that whisper on the side of the mountain. Before he even does that, he first takes care of Elijah's physical needs. And those are the first things that he's concerned about. He's not saying, why do you question me? Why are you thinking these things? That's so Mm. wrong. Like that's not God's response. So why is that our response to people? Wow. And so when people are like, well, why do you do therapy? Why do you take medicine? Why, you know, do you do DBT or go to self-harm meetings or, you know, all that kind of stuff? Like, because it physically helps my mental health. Yeah. Like those are my physical needs that I need to tend to before I can even get to the spiritual. Because mm-hmm. if I'm not taking care of those things, then my relationship with God and Jesus is all out of whack because I have a I have an issue with my body that's preventing me from having an honest conversation with Jesus about where I'm at. And so I always like to point to that because I think we are so quick to just be like, well, why isn't Jesus enough for you? But God doesn't do that. Like he, that's not, even when you go to um, 
what is it? Jonah, like Jonah had suicidal thoughts. If you go to the end of the chapter, we don't talk about that, but you know, Jesus cares intimately about those physical needs because he's experienced them himself. Yeah. And I think we as people of the church maybe should be a bit more concerned with that than we are with whatever's going on with people spiritually. Mm. Um, Cause we can't control that. Right. Like, it's not like you can just say, I give you more faith. Like <laughs> yeah. that doesn't, that's not a thing. So yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's my main advice to people. If you're trying to care for someone who's struggling, but also kind of what I normally say to people who don't think that all the other stuff is important. Mm. Girl, that was so good. Like I have personally never even considered that, but I'd seen, and not to make light of that because it's beautiful, but I saw like a meme or something the other day that was like, you know, literally that story about how God is like, go take a nap. Like you need a nap, like go recharge yourself and like do the thing that I created you to do, which is rest. And like you said, eat, drink water, like these very we're not saying that's going to like cure depression, but we're saying Mm -hmm. that like meet those needs first. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I actually had um, Yvonne Gonzalez, who is a mental health counselor on a few weeks ago. And Mm -hmm. I had never heard anyone really say that, but he said the same thing where he's like, you know, sometimes I'll ask my clients, like, when's the last time you had a good meal, man? And he's like, I don't know. It's been weeks. It's like, go eat, like go eat something good, you know, and how just taking care of those, those basic needs that, you know, our, our world is so busy and so just go, go, go that it is, it's true. Sometimes you, we neglect ourselves in, in those really basic things. Like girl, I don't know how many times I'm like, I just need a shower. Like, can I just get a shower? (laughs) And I feel literally next on my, (laughs) it's literally next on my list today. I literally had to write on my to-do list shower because I think it's been days. So (laughs) (laughs) good thing we're on zoom. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. Um, but yeah, it just, and if you think about people who are really depressed, like that's normally the thing that they have the hardest time doing is taking care of themselves. When I'm like, if I'm having a really hard week, depression wise, my room is an absolute mess. And there's a hundred percent chance that I haven't showered in four days and I probably haven't drank enough water, but like even just having someone remind me like, Hey, go drink a cup of water, <laughs> like can be so powerful because when someone's in that state, like that's exactly what we need mm-hmm. um, is someone to tend to those physical needs. And, you know, whether that person is in a good enough space where they can do it themselves, or maybe that's you being the hands and feet of Jesus and coming over and just cleaning their kitchen like, yeah. or cooking them a meal. Like it's just, it's a lot more simple than I think we make it out to be. Yeah, I totally agree. I could not agree more. So I know you're not a mom yet. No. (laughs) But I was curious if you think you could speak to parents of children Mm. who might be in a similar situation as you, where they're just overwhelmed maybe with the pressures of high school or college. Like, what would you because it sounds to me like your parents did a pretty good job with you. You're like a great kid, right? 
<laughs> and so like what can parents do or not do to maybe yeah. help facilitate one um hopefully like if their child is struggling that they can have a conversation or get them help but also like I know too as a parent sometimes you unintentionally trigger or add to some of this pressure and you know I don't want to do that so maybe you could help us as mamas and dads like kind of navigate that a little bit yeah so I will say and I'm completely transparent about this I made it so hard on my parents when I was going through the mental health struggles that I was because I didn't tell them like I didn't mention any of it to them and they didn't know until it was like really bad Um, And I wasn't even the one who told them it was one of my friends because I just felt so uncomfortable talking about it. And then my poor parents are finding out from a friend and they're like, oh my gosh, like my daughter's not okay at all. And they were terrified because they were five hours away and I was down in Virginia and they were back in Baltimore. So I will say my parents in terms of that did an incredible job handling it. Um, And I think sometimes, you know, I don't give them enough credit for that because it was really hard on them. Um, But one thing I will say that we didn't really talk about that I think my parents will agree is super important to talk about is if you have a history in your family of mental illness, let your kids know. Like I, I didn't know. And I turns out like, you know, I have a couple of generations worth of multiple people who have had depression and anxiety um, issues. And it would have been really helpful to understand because a lot of the stuff we know is passed down biologically. It would have been really helpful for me to know that and to not feel like I was going crazy. Um, So I think that's a really good place to start is if you're aware of that, like have a conversation with your kids and it doesn't need to be, if you're worried about how they're gonna see their family members or something like that, it doesn't have to be super in depth telling them every single thing that their family member has done or thought, but just let them know that in the same way that you would if you have a history of heart disease in your family. Um, So let them know. I think the second thing is just be willing to have a conversation. Like, I know it's really uncomfortable. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it perfect every single time. And I think having that pressure on yourself, whether you're a parent, whether you're a friend, whether you're a significant other of helping someone who's struggling, if you feel the pressure, a lot of people describe it. I think you said it too, as like walking on eggshells around people who are struggling. If you have the pressure on yourself to get it right every single time, that's gonna really prevent you from being there for them in probably the best way that you can. And I know it's really intense a lot of times when people are going through it because you feel like you don't want them to harm themselves or you don't want them to, I mean, if it's suicidal thoughts, take their own life. But in terms of research, like asking people if they're suicidal does not make them take their own life. Like that is a myth that is not true. Um, And so I think be willing to have those conversations with them and then not have that pressure on yourself to think that you have to get it perfect. Cause you yeah. don't like, yeah. we're, like I said, we're all humans. And, you know, there are times in my journey that I've had unfair expectations of the people around me and that's on me. Cause I'm a flawed human. And there have been other times when, you know, someone says something unintentionally that's super hurtful and they're a flawed human and it's okay. Um, so I think those are probably my three tips for parents is let your kids know 
if there's a family history, have the conversation and then, you know, don't put an insane amount of pressure on yourself. Like know going into it that you're going to make mistakes. And then I think that alleviates a lot of the pressure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been leery to share too much in this regard, but my son, my oldest son had a moment over spring break where it just got to be too much. Like it, it, it got very intense for him. Just, I think personally, he's, you know, he's about to be a senior. He's a great student. He's in, you know, involved in multiple things. I think it just got to be too much for him. And he had a moment where he just said, I need to talk to someone. And I was so proud of him and mm-hmm. so thankful that, you know, and again, me not tooting my own horn here, just, you know, sharing a story so that others can hopefully relate and take something from it. But, you know, because of my dad's history of depression, it is something that we've talked about, you know, Hayden's 17. It's not something you can really like hide from them when they get to be older. And, um, and I'm just an open book. Like that's just the way that I parent. So, you know, it was, it, it was actually a beautiful thing because in that moment I could say to him, like, not that you're not special because I love you and you're special, but you're not unique in this regard. Like this is actually very normal to feel the way that you're feeling and to, you know, not really know what to do with those feelings. Um, you know, my very first question to him was, are we talking like self-harm or suicidal thoughts here? Because I didn't want to assume that he had gone all the way to that level, if you will. Um, but I, as a mom, like I have to ask that question. Um, and you know, I think too, and, and I don't know your situation specifically, but for him, he was like, you know, therapy's expensive or seeing a counselor is expensive. And I don't want to like put you guys out and this and that. And I'm like, I'll pay whatever. Like, I don't care. That's not like, that's yeah. not even on my radar. I want you to be as healthy and as well, you know, as you possibly can be. And so I think as parents, sometimes, like you said, just being honest, having, opening that door to the conversation. And then, and then it's not as scary. Like, and then the next time something happens, because let's be honest, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, like your hormones are raging. Life is all new, right? Like everything is kind of a new experience in that season, which can be overwhelming in and of itself. Um, so the next time something happens, hopefully that first conversation is now the catalyst to the second conversation, which is, Hey, I'm still feeling this way or, Hey, I I had a hard day or, and then the doors open, you know, Mm. there's not that blame, shame, and guilt that just follows you around if you're not telling someone. So absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, like you touch on, I think something that maybe we're still as a society getting to, I think now people are more aware of mental illness, but I think there's also this question mark when you're struggling, even if you're a parent who maybe doesn't have a ton of experience in this, like, okay, so if your child comes to you and says that, like, what's the treatment plan? Like, what, like, what's the plan? Like, where do you go from there? And I think there's a lot of like, not really understanding typically what goes on like okay well at what point do you get diagnosed at what point do you get medicine do you need to go to therapy I think maybe part of that is kind of the 
problem too is that people don't understand it's not as scary or as expensive as you might think they're like therapy definitely if you don't have insurance is really expensive but like there are options out there to take care of yourself the same way that you would you know physically and so I think maybe demystifying that a little bit is is super important too yeah so for us like he didn't feel like in the moment he needed six sessions or 10 sessions or a year's worth of whatever. He had a rough week. He was in a bad mental space. He Mm -hmm. spoke up and just needed someone to talk to. And I've always been a big believer in that teenagers especially should have a mentor of some kind because there's just things you're not going to tell your parents. Like at least that that's the way that I was like, I needed another safe Christian adult who I could say things to who couldn't punish me, who could just love me through it. And talk me through it without that, you know, that parental like fix it mode. Yeah. Um, and so for him, and just so people have a resource, um, we scheduled a couple sessions with his school guidance counselor. She's a licensed mental health counselor. She was able to sit with him and just hear him out. And literally two sessions, he was like, that was an anomaly. Like I just needed to, I just needed to vent and I needed someone else other than a parent to vent to. And so, you know, obviously that's not everybody's case. There's more severe situations than that, but just as an example, like, you know, a youth pastor or, you know, like an older cousin, or like maybe he has an older guy cousin that can talk him through it and like, Hey, I I get it, man. I've been there. You know, like there's always someone who's a little further along in life, um, Mm. even if they're not like that licensed, whatever person who, as long as they're like a safe person who loves the Lord, especially I think is helpful, um, that it's, it's just good to have that, like that person, that person in your corner, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So what else do you have for us, Emily? We're going to, we're going to wrap it up here, but I don't know if you have any other, like, words of wisdom or anything else like you'd love just people to hear, whether that's um, just encouragement maybe for those who might find themselves in a similar situation as you or to the people around them that love them. You got any last final words, if you will? Um, I think just that it gets better. I, I think people said that to me so often during those first probably year and a half, two years where I was first struggling with mental health and I really didn't believe them. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but it does, and it might not be in the time frame that you want it to, but like, just take it one day, one moment at a time. I think if you take it a little bit longer than that, it can get overwhelming, but it gets better both as the person who's loving someone through that and also as the person who's going through it. So have that hope from someone who's then all the way at the bottom <laughs> and now is, you know, doing pretty well. So That's just awesome. kind of take that and tuck it in your back pocket. That's great. Thanks, Emily. We're praying yeah. for you, girl. And, you know, I think the most, I'll just kind of add to that, but I think what's important too is that we all struggle and, and the degree is just different, right? Mm-hmm. So again, treat others the way you want to be treated, have that compassion, be the Jesus to all the people that you come in contact with, but especially those that are in this place that is, is hard. It's a hard place. And so, you know, like you said, that compassion, that honesty, 
it goes a long way. So mm, yeah. awesome. Thanks, girl. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. Hey friends, thanks so much for watching and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like and subscribe to this channel and hit that little notification bell so you know every time I post something new. Of course, check out these Love t-shirts as well. That's where you can get all of our Life Jesus style gear and all my favorite people gear. Thanks for tuning in and I hope to see you next time. I will make your name famous from now on so people will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 45, 17. If you like today's episode and want more info, check out lifejesusstyle.com and hashtag lifejesusstyle on social media.